make sure history never forgets the name. Sci-fi melody. Got out. of films such as Total Recall and Robocop comes first, disbelief, then anger. This film wasn't near the book. In Cleveland, the Malady Guys convene. I'm starting to meet these deadlines with my blood, my sleeplessness, and my life. You guys have to give me time. Please, please, on the rod, please give me time. Get back to work. Your job is to ensure this podcast comes out on time, this week, next week, and always. That's your life now. To start this month, the Melody Guys will first review the 1997 Paul Verhoeven film, Starship Troopers. Would you like to know more? Sci-Fi Melody, Symptom 257, Starship Troopers. It only goes downhill from here. Welcome back, Sickies, to Starship Troopers September. And I'm sure some of you who are not happy with my alliteration that last month will be happier this time, I guess. Although I still stand by the truth is out there, Art. What, we, uh, we alliterate the titles? All the time. Well, we try. I except for noticed. next month, my favorite. Except for next month, my favorite month of them. My favorite month of them all, Horror Month. Streetwalker Month not returns. No. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with it. With uh, this month, Starship Trooper September. Now, I'll be honest, Sickies. I wanted, uh, like many things, I wanted to do this for a while. Uh, I was going to do it with a different topic and theme, but you know, it just panned out that man, there's a lot of movies. We should probably review some of them. And uh, out of the joys that was last month where it was i don't think anything under a seven uh this month we're gonna well at least the first episode will get some interesting reviews perhaps so uh sadly we won't have thomas with us today he's a little under the weather but we'll hear some of his take next week on the next episode but in the meantime Let's get into the 1997 Paul Verhoeven film, Starship Troopers, almost said Robocop. He's famous for that. And um, this film has all of the cynicism of Paul Verhoeven. Now, someone online I was reading called this like a Michael Bay film, and to a degree it is, but that person just was mad because they were a real Heinlein fan and Paul Verhoeven really jabbed his thumb in Heinlein's eye when he wrote this sword. Uh, yeah, there's Michael Bay action kind of effects for sure, but there's a lot more going on here, and we'll get into that in a sec. But first, let's dive into the plot. The plot follows Johnny Rico of Buenos Aires and his friend Carl and Carmen, who is his love interest. And they all joined the Federation of Planets. Or whatever. 
And this federation was designed by a group of veterans who, the failure after the failure of democracy, thanks to the social scientists. Oh boy. Anyway, uh, the veterans rose up and put in charge what can only be called an autocratic military-style government, where the only people who get to vote and are citizens, and the only people who get to be citizens are those who serve the military. Um, and Johnny Rico goes to join the military along with his friends, and while he's away, and you know, Carl is a psychic who goes and joins the intelligence and Carmen goes off and joins the fleet to be a pilot and Johnny becomes a member of mobile infantry and while he's in training his planet or his home city is destroyed by an asteroid attack from a planet called Klandathu which is a bug planet and he and Carmen and everyone else get involved in the war with the end game being they find a brain bug capture it and they research it for to learn how to defeat the um, Clan Athens, the, the bug race. And of course, throughout the movie, you get to see a whole lot of fascist underpinning from the uniforms that pretty much look like Nazi uniforms to uh, the, the dispatches to the videos that would you like to know more and join up now for service and, you know, murderer discovered. Murderer convicted of murder and uh, executed tonight at six, you know, that sort of stuff. And uh, it's all there, and it's all a very big criticism of militarism, for sure. And the book is a little different in that it's told from the perspective of Johnny Rico, who is not from Buenos Aires, but from the Philippines. He's not Johnny, he's Juan. And he speaks English and Tagalog, I think it is, is the name of the Filipino language. And he, Carmen is just a girl he had a crush on. Carl does join intelligence, but gets killed early on in the siege. But uh, he is not from, none of them are from Buenos Aires, although his mother dies in Buenos Aires when she's there and the Clendathans launched that meteor there. Uh, you might be tempted to wonder, how come, where are the tanks in this movie? Are there no tanks in the book? No, because in the book they have these combat battle suits that pretty much serve as tanks. Um, and let's see, the movie just, let's, what else is different from the book? I'm just trying to remember, Sickies, give me a minute. Uh, oh, the teacher who winds up be running Rachek's Roughnecks. In the book, the teacher was a veteran who, after Johnny graduates at the beginning, the only way they communicate is through letters, and the teacher winds up keeping Johnny in the military after he witnesses corporal punishment. Um, in the end, Johnny's on his way to officer training after becoming the hero of P, which happens in the film. The brain bug is captured, of course, like that. That part is correct. Um, like I said, Carmen and Johnny were never a thing. Dizzy was a Dizzy Flores was a guy, a friend of Johnny's who he met while in boot and wound up getting killed on P. And uh, let's see. It, oh yeah, and Johnny's dad, who survived because he wasn't in Buenos Aires, 
he winds up, yes, he's very anti-military at the beginning, but towards the end of the book, because of the war, he winds up enlisting and becoming very pro-Federation. So those are just some of the differences. But I want to quickly, oh yeah, and there's only, I'm only going to give one fun fact because there's a lot to go through here and I, Scott is going to have a lot of good stuff to say, say please. but I will say one fun fact. If you look at the Federation mobile infantry uniforms and then you watch the Alliance of Firefly, particularly the train heist episode, you're going to notice these look exactly the same. That's because they work. <laughs> the mobile infantry uniforms from Starship Troopers were later repurposed in Joss Whedon's Firefly because they needed soldiers in the Alliance to dress up and look futuristic, and this is all they had on hand. So, if you're wondering, why do they look the same? It's because they are. That's your fun fact. So let's get into rips and picks. I think I want to start with a pick. Okay. I love the... I don't know if it's a framing mechanism, but whatever it is, the the constant interjection of the news propaganda clips. Would you like to know more? Would you like to know more? Yeah. And I also love at the end that we're test we're constantly testing and probing the brain bug as they stab it with something and then they center out that they're basically um violating it. Uh, yeah. basically sit there and say, oh, I don't know what this test is for, but let's slam this up here on this thing. Well, I mean, and let's be honest, the mouth of that thing did look like a vagina. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it, it, the... It's... It's a, it's a pick-rip combo in the fact that um, there can often be scientific testing and study that yields results. But I think it, it's also um, it's well known that sometimes scientific testing and is just cruelty. And, and to make that point that way where the media will come off and, and pitch or spin that scientific testing is all for the betterment of society is a lie. And I like the way that it was, if you look at this as a satire um, I think that was an excellent piece of satire to say a lot of times what's going on in the name of testing is is nothing more valid than what Mengele did. Well, well there's your Nazi reference, Sickies. It's but, unavoidable this week. Come on. Yeah. Basically, oh, Doogie Hauser is supposed to be Mengele. Yeah. And uh, or, I am I wrong there? I don't think so, but he winds up being a little bit. But I mean it is true, I hate to admit it, that we learned a lot about hypothermia from Dr. Mengele's disgusting experiments. Um, dousing his prisoners in icy cold water and then throwing them out into the frozen night to see what happened. Um, yeah, I, I, I hate to admit that we learned something from that. But, yeah, you're right. Sometimes, at least historically, science was brutal, and there is no difference. Um, I would say a pick would be the occasional way that, like all good science fiction, it 
accurately depicted the future in that just remember the scene where you know they're discussing some this federal scientists are discussing uh whether we should invade the planet one woman was saying there's a brain bug we can communicate with them and the other one saying i find that idea offensive and they started arguing i just thought yeah yeah that's oh my gosh that is so head on that that's so right on that that that's essentially just about any 24-hour news agency now uh, wow so i guess yeah the, the the federal news broadcasts are pretty spot on um i <sighs> I mean, the action is fun. Gary Busey's kid is interesting. You know, <laughs> that's that's true. What is it? Ace is Gary Busey's kid. I I saw him like that. That is Gary Busey's kid. Yep. Um, and it is funny to watch the Kurgan shout "medic" during training every time he breaks someone's arm or whatever. But that's Rube Baker, whose arm he breaks too from Major League Two. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Rube. <laughs> pretty sure. I, I love that scene too. where he tells him, put your hand on that wall, soldier. Yeah. And it throws a knife to it. He cannot use his hand. He cannot pull the trigger. He, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's true, but couldn't you just shoot his hand? Well, it's, it, I mean, it's also, it's also a rip because um, later on, Doogie Hauser comes back and says, if you shoot a bug in the arm, it's still 80% combat, combat effective with the loss of one limb. So, fantastic there, Drill Sergeant. You have disabled yeah. one pincer of the bug. But it's so strong that that knife isn't going to keep it pinned to the wall. And it has seven other appendages that could push that button. But beyond that, it isn't even a nuke war. You're not trying to stop them from using a nuke against you, you're trying to keep them from overwhelming you and ripping you to pieces with razor-sharp appendages. So it's also a rip, because the training here is useless. Knife throwing well, for this war means nothing. And I know they try to make it mean something by having, uh, by having what's-her-name cut off the brain bug's appendage, as it's going to yeah. suck her brain out, but that's not a throwing knife or anything of that nature. That training was useless and ace is correct for pointing that out yeah i don't want to say it's useless but it, of all the things they could be doing not their best choice um yeah you know that this is a rip that eventually they correct i guess using world war one style tactics to just mass fight it's like, well, if you don't care about the planet and you just want all these bugs dead, why don't you just glass it from orbit? You don't even use these nukes. Just go far enough away and launch a few titanium rods at the planet. The kinetic energy alone will kill everything there. Yeah, the, um, the tactics are terrible anyway because um, we're outnumbered. There's a whole lot more of them than us. So how should we fight them? 
Let's come in in mass, un mass units and storm them. Wait, we want to meet them head on? Yes, let's meet them head on with our guns yeah. that take almost a full clip to kill one. Oh my God. Well, that's, that's okay because those guns uh, apparently never need to be reloaded. Uh, Doogie puts him down with one shot to the nerve stem. Why is the doctor more accurate than half a platoon of trained soldiers shooting at these bugs? Why aren't they accidentally hitting the nerve center? Because the mobile infantry is apparently the dumbest soldiers ever made. Here's another rip. Uh, when, when Johnny jumps on the back of, like, the massive tank bug... Oh, yeah, yeah I agree. And he oh, shoots boy. a hole in it to throw the grenade mm -hmm. down it, and then it explodes? Yeah. Well, that stuff that is its blood is clearly the acid. Like, I'm thinking, oh, it's spraying formic acid that's burning off people's appendages and skin. So let's throw a grenade inside of it so that stuff explodes all over the place. Shouldn't it have well, killed Johnny and everyone else? I guess it's not acid until it goes through the thing's mouth. Although it did have the appendages that light up with, like, electricity or whatever, so maybe that does it. Oh, so it's, it's an inert material in its blood until it mixes with a catalyst in its mouth. Yeah. But when you that. blew it up, that didn't, like, release the catalyst material into the remain of the... Uh, I don't know. No, because it's biological. Look, I don't know. It's, a, it's the whole scene of it. <laughs> because also the way he jumps on it and stays on its back, it's like... Nope. Okay, nice, nice job, Paul Maudib. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I got an idea. Why don't you just pull the grenade, count to three, and then throw it? <laughs> I've also got to say, you cannot survive a tactical nuke displacement wave by ducking down no. behind cover like that. No, no. You're all no, dead, no, no, too. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's the other thing. I was wondering that, too. Like, um, aren't they dead? They're all earlier dead. When they launched a nuke, earlier when they launched a nuke down a bug hole, it killed everything, including the bugs that were outside. But somehow you, I see, because the plot says so. Got it. If you dive out of the way of the nuclear fire, you live. That's how it works. Yeah. Also, well, you can it, outrun the shockwave. You can see it behind armor, you and yeah. gaining on you and still outrun it on foot. Yeah, plot armor. Yeah, plot powers. That's why. Um, I think it should be clear to anybody now that this film is over the top ridiculous. But I give Paul Verhoeven the credit that he knew at and did it on purpose because he has other more serious films. Uh, I'm thinking of one right now, uh, Soldier of Orange. is a film about the Dutch resistance, and it was very much more realistic in that regard and lacked the ridiculous over-the-top action punch. Um, even RoboCop to a degree. Yeah, RoboCop was bloody and gory, but... It was far more believable violence than, say, this or even Total Recall. Those movies added a cartoonish element for kicks. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, even even to the point of the oversized <laughs> rifles with never-ending movie clips. To I mean, we're making a statement here about the about mankind's love of guns and the BFG, and the bigger the gun, the better the gun. The well, you know. Yeah, well, you know, that's a really great lead-in, because I want to spend the rest of the time on the 
themes of this story. And this is going to be dipping into both the film and the book, although be a little bit differently. I did something I normally don't do, sickies, for these reviews. And that is, I actually did a little bit of background in the author because it was bugging me that the book and the film are so starkly different. Um, I reckoned that that didn't bother me as much because Paul Verhoeven, unlike a modern filmmaker who, say, denigrates Thor for their amusement, Paul Verhoeven wasn't doing it to jab their thumb in the viewer's eye. He wanted to make an ethical statement against what he believed Heinlein was shoveling. Not, I'm going to just deuce all over you because I think it's funny. Um, and I saw, I was like, well, I got to watch what, you know, I want to look into what does Heinlein believe? And it's a little bit amb ambiguous. Um, he was a, liberty, a libertarian. He said that as much. But, of course, libertarian has evolved over time. He was much closer to Ayn Rand. And he believed in certain things that, um, of course, we know have not panned out. But we couldn't, I can't give him that criticism, because how could he have known? Um, but his book, on one hand, seems like a support of things like a, a form of autocracy, but also a warning, a cynical warning, depending on how you take it. But let's dive into some of the big topics that are in the movie and the book. And let's start with the big one, militarism. Okay? Paul Verhoeven is clearly giving a warning. You know, he has been quoted as saying, war makes fascists of us all. And Again, this is a guy that has been, who has lived in two hours, or lived through two uh, world wars. Well, okay, he didn't live through them, but his country did. So he's a guy that, and also Holland was a colonial power. He's from Holland. And so he kind of, um, you know, he has some feelings about that, obviously. Heinlein allegedly wrote this book in response to some activists saying that we should suspend nuclear testing in the 50s. They actually penned an open letter to Eisenhower saying stop nuclear testing, to which he replied that would lead to our demise. Uh, he also signed a pro-Vietnam letter. Um, but for Heinlein, military service was kind of um, the necessity because for him military service encapsulated civic duty it encapsulated the idea that you care about other people and are willing to put yourself above others in the book there are other people in boot camp um hendrick and dillinger who are there one of them's a criminal is trying to get some he does something criminal murder whatever and i think it was um Hendrick is doing it just because he wants to be a citizen and vote and get certain privileges. And so the military figures that out, weeds them out, and kicks them out. Because they're only looking for the moral citizen soldier. Because the film and the book are, uh, both get it right, 
that democracy failed the 20th century due to social scientists and the veterans rose up to save the day. And so this book could, and this, the film could easily be viewed as kind of a glorification of the military industrial complex. And that maybe a military dictatorship is something that might be good because it produces citizen soldiers who take the, um, who take the, well-being of the community and puts it above themselves because even in the book you know and even in the film rico stops worrying about citizenship and starts worrying about seeing the end of the war and saying the, saving the terran federation um but the problem is too as we'll see later on by excluding civilian voices and just trusting that scientific verification or math will always exist it kind of, um, it just assumes that the military will be right, you know? That civilian voices in the book are frequently ignored. That whatever concern they bring up is clearly not worth it because they don't have the fortitude to serve. There's um, so so I, I guess the, the, the question to lead off with, and You've already got a thought, so I'll let you run with it, Scott. No, 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 go ahead. What's the question? Um, so, is first, is this this story pro-militarism? Now, this the, the film is clearly anti, because Paul Verhoeven is arguing that uh, it leads to become, becoming fascists ultimately, because uh, there's a class of people who feel they're better suited just because they serve, no matter how dunderheaded they are. And then there's the book which says, no, 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 it produces morally upright citizens and that's the best way to serve. And non-citizens should have peace and security, but they shouldn't be contributing because they don't, know how, they don't have skin in the game. So which one, where's the equilibrium? But go on, Scott, start with the point you wanted to make and then jump in. Well, I mean, I can't speak to the book. I can speak to what I saw in this movie, and this movie is is absolutely a satire of militarism, whether that is um, the effectiveness of the military, where in the first case they don't even consider the fact that the, the arachnids could be sentient and intelligent, and, you know, they just think that fire is going to be random, and the first, the first battle is an absolute um, annihilation. Mm-hmm. It's also a critique of militarism in the fact that it shows the soldiers in an unpleasant light in the fact that um, they're all talking about, I hope some are still alive when we get there to kill them. Uh, I lost my family in in Buenos Aires. Kill them all. The only good bug is a dead bug. Um, And that doesn't speak to the better angels of human nature. Um, If we all thought like that, that's how you get into a never-ending cycle of violence. Um, you well, hurt me, anything, so it, I'm going to hurt you. If, if anything, it begs the question, does the Terran Federation want war to constantly happen? Because what's the point of having a militaristic government if you're not at war? I would agree. I, I would agree. Uh, the, the other thing that I think it is a critique of the military is in what its study of science is. Um, the movie in in two different cases goes first you have the new sky marshal says we need to understand the bugs so that we can figure out how to kill them 
There's no effort at understanding them so that we can figure out how to make common cause and peace and, and design a framework to coexist in a massive galaxy. Um, and then it says later on, when they meet the general who's hiding in a locker, they do things to your mind because they're trying to understand us so that they can figure out how to kill us better. This is basically saying that any militaristic society isn't looking for a way to understand the enemy to make peace with them and to coexist, but simply to understand them to exploit their weaknesses psychologically or physically and to be able to kill them easier. Um, and that's a, it presents a one-sided view of the science that does exist. You see it again in, in all of the work of Carl uh, slash Doogie Hauser, and anytime he's on the screen, I mean, he's definitely pers um, portrayed in all of his fascist regalia um, to show sure. you that the yeah. worst quality of militarism um, and the devaluing of other life. They know that that brain bug is sentient and intelligent, and they, they, they devalue it in every time that it is on the screen. Um, they don't treat it, they treat it as an animal, not as a life, um, even after they've captured it, and he says it's afraid. Of course it's afraid, it knows what you're about to do with it. It doesn't even paint humanity in a good light. Um, yeah. Here's the thing. Is that an accurate representation of militarism in every single case? I don't know. It certainly is in some cases. Um, well, I suppose in this case, if we just go by the film, um, it, it's accurate in so much as because the government is the military, and the military at the end of the day is an autocracy. Um, even the U.S. military, even the military of a democracy is at the end of the day a certain degree autocracy which no. you need you need it to be that way you do you do um, and that's kind if of if you go back if you go back to the early days of the russian revolution i was listening to mike duncan's um excellent podcast about that check out revolutions if you're interested but he talked about how early on the bolsheviks wanted to make this framework of oh officers have to be democratic and and it didn't work at all the whites were killing them because you had all the Bolsheviks being voluntarily going in and out and leaving. And it just, there was no order. There was no command. There was no discipline. It was everybody does what they want. So, and they learned pretty quickly, you know, Trotsky, who took over the military, said, this isn't working. We have to knock it off. And that's where I kind of come back to. I don't know if I agree with what the movie is saying, that militarism has to bring you, has to turn us all into fascists at the end. I don't know if I agree with this satire. Um, ultimately, it can, but um, I could also argue that it might have produced some of the more effective governments that, that uh, humanity has seen. Well, um, give an example. I would argue that Republican Rome and even uh, uh, certainly the Roman Empire was a militaristic authoritarian regime, even though you had the Senate. Uh, Republican Rome might be a better example of some hybrid uh, militarism and, and democratic uh, methodology. Uh, the, the empire, not so much, but 
in either way, I would argue that those were very effective governments, and the Empire even was effective well into the, the 200s. Uh, yeah, the crisis of the 2nd century, for, or the 3rd century for sure. But the, the Empire in the time of Augustus and immediately afterwards, and probably all the way up through Domitian, um, tended to be an effective way of ruling, and it wasn't purely democratic even in the Republican era, and definitely not in the, in the era of the Empire. Uh, I've long kind of said that I'm not sure that, that democracy, pure democracy certainly, and even um, democracy as we have it today, is the most efficient form of government, and, and I believe that you can just cite some clear examples. Um, you said the military is an autocracy. It is. Most successful businesses, successful businesses are autocracies. Uh, it flows up to one person who ultimately has a say over everything, and there's a clear delineated chain of command, and you don't get to vote. Um, that leads to action being taken. One way or the other, an action is going to be taken, and if you have good leaders, and if you've rolled the iron die, as uh, Dan Carlin would say, and you've come up good on that roll, you end up with an effective government that can do great things. And if you have the right people in place, um, they can take the actions needed to the build a is, strong society. Democracy. The problem is. Go ahead. That's a big if because um, people who tend to get that much power tend to believe with with notable exceptions tend to believe that they are above the law above reproach and can't see anything being wrong with their way i had a student from libya once and he told me that one of the things he learned in life was to get different opinions because he grew up under gaddafi and it was gaddafi's way and no other oh that's gaddafi he took over using the military, and guess what? It was his way. Yeah, decisions were streamlined for sure, including the bad ones, which were manifold. Yes. When you look at um, the militaristic government of fascists in, in the war, some of the decisions you would hear are mind-blowing. Like, how would you make that dumb of a decision? All true. All true. Right. But so there, that's the problem. You really, as you said, roll the iron dice. But the problem is there's only a one in six chance. Militaries tend to have successful militaries tend to have sorting mechanisms that filter that out that might be able to be reimagined into government to filter it out. Well, that's that's, um, a, that's wishful thinking. It is, except I could argue that it probably in some ways succeeded, at least in a couple different, you know, um. I mean, the Han Dynasty had a good run. There's no democracy in that. It had a really good run for certain periods of time. Not in its fall and not at its end, but I mean, the Han Dynasty was around 200 years in each, in each side and had some really good years during that time period. So it can be successful. It can have some filtering mechanisms. Um, and the, the Roman Empire and the Republic had its, had its great run too, and, and there's others. Uh, that said, democracy has its own weaknesses. Look at the American sure. system. Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. It's, it, it tends to degenerate into a race to the bottom or a race to, to pander to populism. It, it, it has that risk. And ultimately, I think there is a reason why 
organizations that have to get results and don't have time to debate it and don't have time to build consensus stay away from democracy. It's not effective. It's not efficient. And it doesn't always, the theory of democracy is that it's going to get you the best, most qualified person in charge. And for anyone who believes in that nonsense, I give you the people running the United States of America from 2016 to the current day. Because the people in the job of the presidency, the people in the job of the presidency had absolutely zero business being in that spot. And the difference between the United States elected government is that when the leader is clearly incompetent, neither party is actually willing to remove that person if they're in control. But I can show you on a regular basis where CEOs of corporations get removed by shareholder vote and sacked because they have become unprofitable and have demonstrated themselves to be incompetent. When the bottom line is money and your incompetence is removing that or the bottom line is victories on the battlefield, generals get removed by other generals and they're either going to go peacefully or they're going to be forced out. CEOs get voted out. You get results. Or you get removed. You might have your golden parachute, but you get removed. This is turning into political malice. Stop. Of course it's going to. It's about militarism and whether whether an autocracy or a democracy is a more ideal form of government. And I'm saying they each have their flaws, and I'm not sure either is better than either. Before we get to the next theme, I will say this. The Peter Principle exists for a reason, including in the military. I've spoken with enough soldiers that tell me that. Of course it does. You don't know, Sikis, the Peter Principle is that you are promoted by you based on your level of competence. Or what is it, Scott? You explain it better. You you, you are promoted until you fail. And then when you fail, you will go back down to the last job you successfully did and stay there for the rest of your career. That exists in everything. I'm just saying the military... you just fail, you know, you fail upwards is another way to put what I'm saying, so... Yeah, but when you when you fail spectacularly and you get to a promotion that you can't handle, you 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 don't go any higher. Or in the corporate world, you go back down to the last job that you successfully did. Uh, um, but well, I would say that it happens in the military and in and in the and in the uh, the corporate sector as much as but, you get incompetent leaders in politics. But somehow in politics, there's not a filtering mechanism. Democracy. As much as you think it should filter out people like Hank Johnson, who were concerned that Guam would tip over and capsize as a result of a troop surge, somehow get voted in over and over and over again. And democracy is far less efficient at filtering out the idiots than an autocracy is and the incompetent. Okay, good. Except maybe not at the highest level, but... Okay, the next theme. (laughs) So, we determined that militarism, though it has some bright spots, is probably more dangerous than it's worth. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll agree with that. Uh, be interesting to hear what Thomas says, probably something similar, but different conclusion. Next one has to do with citizenship, because of course in this setting, in order to vote and be considered a citizen and run for office or whatnot, you have to serve. The idea coming from a very a uh, social Darwinist point of view. Um, that is that the only way you can properly exercise something is when you've earned it. And the failing that he, Heinlein was making was that 
people who just have the franchise by virtue of being born here, uh, there's no skin in the game. They didn't earn it. They didn't think about it. They are just uh, leeches who can vote in for the Hank Johnson who's worried about um, the island of Guam capsizing because that guy said the right thing or whatever the case may be. Uh, so, and this is considered a moral and philosophical issue that a very social Darwinistic uh, idea that um, you have to show skin in the game and only those who are going to tough it out and have the proper moral turpitude will be the ones that should be getting citizenship. This again is Heinlein being way over idealistic because again this is assumption that people who earned it vis-a-vis -vis the military will be more competent yet history has shown too that those who are solely focused on things like scientific development for the military tend to well overlook anything else that doesn't involve shooting a bullet great example there was a famous emperor of Afghanistan who had a French astronomer come to him and he, the, the emperor wanted to open a university and this astronomer was pointing out telescopes and optics and saying, oh, well, this could be very helpful for university science department. To which the emperor replied, well, if they don't fire a bullet, I'm not interested. And if you're a militarist through and through, well, the idea that rationality and scientific achievement are going to govern your life, I'm how? I recognize that the military has done scientific achievements, but um, at the end of the day, they're also going to look at things in terms of how does it kill people? Um, well, through a hammer, everything looks like people? a nail. Yeah. So, and the idea that, so the idea that by serving, you thus become you have fulfilled the requirements of moral turpitude to be weeded out and the fortitude to carry out your term, and therefore you'd be a better voting citizen. Well, that's, I mean, that's as foolish as assuming that everybody who ever voted for, or everybody if they're just free and that, they can get their education to become good voters. Um, that, that's my take, that it's overly idealistic that the soldiers at all obviously vote for the community rather than themselves and be smart enough to do that. They served. It's a very social Darwinistic thing, which is funny because Heinlein has been known to be a very big individualist. Um, he is really big on individual liberties which kind of strike in the face of militarism because you're supposed to be a cog in a machine, but um, he was a very big individualist who believed that you have individually decided to sacrifice. So this notion of citizenship, that you have to work to earn it, particularly through military service, and that gives you the moral um, um, moral knowledge to do it it 
But what, what do you think of that, Scott? I think it's incredibly complicated, and I think Heinlein, Heinlein is searching for something here. He's searching for a filtering mechanism to get voters who take the privilege seriously and in, in the decision-making. I think, I think ultimately, I have said this before, that I am strongly against everybody being able to vote. Um, I, I think that many people go and vote without having any idea what they're actually voting for. Um, right now, I would not assign the right to vote to myself. I'm not well-versed enough in a lot of the differences in the issues, the candidates, uh, local issues. I haven't taken the time to really vet that out and to make an informed decision. Uh, in the past, my criteria was different, and, and it doesn't hold up anymore. Um, and it's a really hard thing to do, because how do, you, how do you create voting criteria that doesn't have systemic biases within it? But at the same time, do we want people going to vote on an issue who don't have the ability to understand or haven't taken the time to understand the issue but are going to cast a vote on it because their favorite TV talking head told them they should vote this way uh, on whatever it is. You know, more widget production or less widget production. They can't tell you what a widget is and they can't tell you what the bottom line impact to society for either way it's voted is but their favorite talking head told them they should vote for more widget production. Should that person be allowed to vote? But then how do you keep filtering that out? But I think what's more important is, the thing to filter out is, how do you find the person who will vote for a policy that is not in their best interest, but is in the best interest of society? Well, and the supposition of Heinlein is that by being in the military, you learn how to put someone else above yourself. And if you can't, then you're weeded out and not allowed to finish your term and become a citizen. And Again, in, highly idealistic thinking there. In theory, you do. And that's why I, I, I kind of like to explore that option. You've learned how to sacrifice. But then so does a firefighter. So should a firefighter uh, get citizenship and be able to vote? Is it a first responder? Who, who is it that has demonstrated the ability to sacrifice their own good for the greater good of society? It, it, can't just Where do be you the draw military. the line? It can't just be the military, right? It can't just um, be the military. And because if you the think same, that everyone in the military is going to vote against their own best interest at times, because it's human nature to act in your own best interest and to not support things that are not in your own best interest. And it takes an act of rationality, controlling your own emotions and your own passions to say, I'm going to vote for this tax hike. And there'll be no immediate benefit for me out of this 5% tax hike. But it's going to benefit 60 million other people. More than it's going to hurt me. So I'm going to vote for this. Almost no one does that. It all, yeah. In the end, it, it, people vote with what is in their best interests. People look at a policy that is good for them. And they don't care how many other people it's bad for. And if it's bad for them, they don't care how many other people it's good for. And this is the inherent flaw with democracy. And to be quite honest with you, there is no way to filter this out. There is no amount of testing you can do 
There's no amount of criteria you can set. Because look, if you say that it's property ownership, well, that's not right. Because then they're never going to consider, um, they're going to vote in their best interest, which is to protect the property value and to keep their taxation as low as possible while providing the services that they need. And if, and if you own a lot of property and you're sending your kids to private school, then you're not going to vote for many public school levies, are you? Um, so ultimately, you can't filter this out, which comes down to it is one of the inherent flaws in democracy. So you're left with everybody gets to vote, period. And you hope that if you have a, a strong society, the number of informed voters will far outweigh the number of uninformed voters. And you will, when you whole society as a whole, or those willing to take the time to go to vote, or allowed to, um, not steered away from the polls or made so hard that they can't vote, um, that you will get a, a sound decision made by society as a whole. Um, I don't think it works out that way in, in, progr- in, in reality, but show me a better system that doesn't have its own flaws. Um, in the end, it comes down to we are not a we're not nearly the moral, upright, upstanding, good species that we think we are. At the end of the day, we still tend to act most often um, in our own self-interest and not in the interest of others. And without that quality of empathy, that when you truly act from empathy for others, maybe the human race will have evolved to its next level. Well, and I think it's... um an interesting point to make that uh, the supposition, which has been posited by some politicians, is that obviously if you serve in the military, you vote the right way. Well, no. I've spoken to some veterans that uh, have a horrible view of things or are ridiculously uneducated on certain issues. Um, and they might have served well. They were, dis- they were discharged with honors. Thank you for your service. But um, no, inflation doesn't work that way. Or um, whatever other issues, you know. No, the budget doesn't work that way. Or no, that fact is just blatantly untrue. So this supposition that, oh, if you just serve in the military, you're you're more likely to be sacrificial in nature towards everyone else. Well, I mean, maybe. Maybe. As you said, Scott, what's the criteria? Because as you said, well, a firefighter running into a burning building to save someone, I'd call that putting the heads, the knees of the many above you. I'd call that a win. Um, a, a police officer. You know, another example. You're probably um, more willing. I would say that it's probably a true statement that most people who serve in the military are more likely to put somebody else's good ahead of their own. Um, well, you hope so. It's you not. Look, so. it comes down to I was not willing to put my own life at risk and possibly die to serve in the military to protect the freedoms in this country that I love so much. But there are people who are. And those are was, brave men and women, and they are heroes. And it is not something I'm brave enough to do, and it's not something I'm willing to take the risk to do. Now, maybe if there was a direct and eminent threat at this point in time to, to my wife and my daughter, 
my my uh, opinion of that would change. But I'm a washed up 41 year old man, so you really don't want me trying to defend this country against anybody. No, uh, but the point of the matter is that the only one of the you know I mean I wasn't the person who was willing to risk my own life and limb for and sacrifice make the sacrifice that a military life requires and it does yeah and someone who's willing to sign up and do that they are cut from a different mold you have to be in some way shape or form is it true that that's always going to lead to a voter who's going to be willing to because it's the right thing to do always vote for the betterment of society at the expense of themselves I'm not sure that that is a logical conclusion that follows from premise A. Premise no. A, what? if you serve in the military, you have a, an ethos of serving and sacrifice. Premise B, with that ethos, you will vote for what is best for society. Conclusion, you will always put society's best interest ahead of your own. I don't think that argument works. I don't think it flows and follows. No, I, don't, I can't say it does. but. Um Mostly because, as you said, what's the benchmark for selflessness? Um, what if it's somebody who, as you said, yeah, I'll take the tax hike because I know it's going to benefit everybody else here. Is, is that so? It is selflessness. Why doesn't that count? Um, is the charity kind of donation selfless, Plus, selfless if it's only done to reduce your tax liability by the same amount? Well, there's that too. Plus, you know, what's interesting to me is Highline grew up in a time where the draft was a thing. It's like, well, if you're drafted, is that really selfless? I mean, maybe during the Second World War it was, but Vietnam? Um, well, having been raised by that generation, I can assure you, a good number of the guys that went to Vietnam were just because they felt like they had to because they were drafted. Yeah, you didn't want to spend time um, in jail as a draft dog. My, da my dad, why was he in the Navy? Because he knew he was going to get drafted, so he went the way he wanted to. Now, granted, there was some romanticism with the Navy that he felt. But had the draft not existed, he may not have pursued that. So, and Heinlein should have been aware of that. He grew up in the Vietnam era, too. So... Anyway, I think he was searching uh, although, for something. I don't think this was. Yeah, it probably was. Because also, he was searching for a better democracy. Be, yes, because that brings us to our next point nicely: moral code and degeneracy. He felt that society was getting more and more degenerate as the, you know, you're looking at this next generation, the sub, the previous generation does, and he felt that the way to fight the kind of moral decay that he felt was going on in the U.S., that is people getting soft and having the vote given to them and um, not having to earn it, you know, whatever that is. And by the way, as you said, the people who generally complain everyone else just wants a gimme are the ones that want the biggest handout of themselves. Um, you know, you look at, again, the Nazis, they accused people of not being working hard enough and then what the nazis do they they had an economy run by thievery um but going back to this this belief that one of the things that would contribute to the improving of the moral code 
the human instincts are for survival, more or less the instinct to avoid corporal punishment, which was rampant in that his society of his book and the movie. And by avoiding that, you would eventually stumble into a moral philosophy. Because you would first start out following the rules because you were trying to do survival instinct, but eventually would learn the kind of selflessness that we just talked about. Um, does that really play out, though? Well, first of all, does it play out because, one, remember, if, you, if Heinlein were to think back, if he had bothered to, he would have realized that his parents and grandparents thought he was the most degenerate human being in the world, probably. Correct. And two, um, does a survival instinct necessarily lead to people just avoiding punishment and we all need to be spanked or otherwise corporally punished and by trying to avoid following the rules to avoid that we eventually stumble into moral uh, codes because biblically speaking that doesn't hold up at all. <laughs> um, that's like saying the death penalty prevents murder. Does it? No. Um, that's, that's never been proven to be true. Well, I love it when biblical people go with spare the rod, spoil the child, and the belief of, um, you know, punishment as a, as a, as a deterrence to crime. Because, well, because is, yeah. that what, is that what God really went with in the end? Um, well, there will be punishment, yes, but the point is, A, define punishment. It's punishment. It, it doesn't well, necessarily mean corporal punishment as Heinlein was going for. God is the all-powerful, um, God is the all-powerful creator being of the universe. But... If he chose to, he could simply say that everyone who didn't live up to his morality and sinned would face death and hell immediately upon sinning. Luckily for us, God yeah. didn't do this, and he gave us a path for redemption, and the only people that will face, uh eternity in hell are the people who um, unrepentantly refuse that path of redemption until the day they die. Um, right. So, you know, the only, real, the only real unpardonable sin to God is, is I guess, apparent ignorance. But, um, well, willful. But the point is, but no, even, with, um, even with yeah, the idea that your survival instinct will somehow make you a moral person because you want to avoid punishment, um, Again, somebody's really living in fantasy land here because, um, as I pointed out to many people, corporal punishment has never actually stopped crime. No. Yeah, whatever punishment, jail sentences, been fighting a war on drugs since Nixon, uh, tougher jail sentences, executions. You think anyone in the moment who is killing someone, whether it's in a premeditated murder, or, uh, I mean, you think anyone is sitting there thinking about a revenge murder because they're going after killing someone who killed a loved one of theirs is stopping for a second because they know that they're going to get the electric chair or the gas chamber? No, it doesn't stop for Some a second. Well, it depends how far they're going, but yeah. It, it, it's not a deterrent. It's a punishment. The best deterrent for crime is to create a society that works. And by that, I mean a society that allows people to live comfortably and happy with a little more than they need. It's not about building a society that gives everyone the necessities of what they need. It's the best deterrent to crime 
is building a society that lets people have what they need and just a little bit more. Or maybe a lot little bit more. It, that is far more than building these, these tough criminal justice systems with brutal prisons that people are afraid of. Because ultimately, no one ever thinks they're going to get caught when they go commit the crime. It, it doesn't, it's not a deterrent. It's been shown over and over again that it doesn't work. Now to the and second part of this. Oh, go on. Are we degenerating morally? Um, it depends how you define morals, really. Uh, well, let me answer this. Uh, yes, we are. And no, we're not. Um, yeah, that's a good explain way to that. it. Yes, we're constantly degenerating morally from the time of Sodom and Gomorrah on. Um, at the height of the Roman Republic, I mean, there was decadence and immorality that I don't even want to go into. Um, the greatest generation, again, believed in some things that today we would look at as amazingly immoral. And that was a society that made the world safe for democracy um, and emerged, uh, put a man on the moon, harnessed the power of the atom, Defeated the, uh, defeated the Soviet Union and won the Cold War, and for one brief moment looked like it was an ace away from bringing in the end of war and democracy and freedom to the whole world. For a brief moment when the Berlin Wall fell and when the Soviet Union collapsed, it looked like they were on the verge of doing the impossible. Then we realized how far away they really were from that. But that was a generation that built and accomplished that. And, uh, I mean, that is a generation that had some really uh, wrong-footed ideas about gender equality, uh, racial equality, uh, just to name two. So, you want to talk about their moral degeneration? Come on. Um... Is, is this generation degenerating any faster? No. It's just a different type and a different expression of whatever moral degeneration. It's always been there. It's al- is there anything on TV today that's really more offensive than married with children? So are we degenerating more than the generation um, that, you know, TV writers who, who uh, wrote the, the married with children sitcom? Um Go back to the Roaring Twenties, and people were talking about flappers as the as the sign of the end of American society and decency. It's, I it's, would argue. So yes, we're degenerating because we always have been. No, because we're not degenerating any faster than we've always been. Human beings are always, um, at their core, lusty, greedy, terrible people searching for instant gratification. I would argue that the reason it seemed more moral, um, when I, I, I disagree with Heinlein's, well, we're morally degenerate because we're soft. Well, his definition of soft, I guess, is we're not all a bunch of Spartans. Spartans. But um, I think, too, the reason, if you go back to the 50s and early 60s, people can say we were more moral is because the indecency was not out in the open. Um, other than the racism, that is. But if you watch TV, it was wholesome and friendly and showing the right moral, you know what I mean? Dennis the Menace was wholesome. Um, those kind of shows. 
But the problem is that it was one of those like, well, we're okay. With the, there were mistresses. We just didn't talk about that. You know, it, it was a veneer. And so I think what happens to a lot of people is that they want the veneer back. They want to believe in the moral decency that existed because we kept up a standard and we, uh, we had the honor system. Well, that was due to crumble at some point. Okay, that could only be sustained for so long. So, And the um, older generation always seems to find a way to overlook their own moral failings while focusing on uh, sure. this current generation's moral failings as defined by the norms of their day and age and generation. That's right. That's right. Ignoring that's, their moral failings as defined by the consensus and, of the current generation. And that's a problem we see in like my church where older people think the younger people aren't good enough or doing enough but then when you go back and say oh yeah what'd your grandparents think about the way you did this song or you did that oh they hated that oh so you defied your grandparents and did something new oh but when the kids do it it's bad because it's not your way i'll just i I think i'll leave it at this and and a lot of people are going to be like are you kidding me but ultimately Justin Bieber and Frank Sinatra are the same entertainer. Well, one of them's a better singer, I can say that. Frank Sinatra was a pop singer who was, sure he his, was. his music that got him started would have been called in today's day and age teeny bop. He was a pop 40 sure. top 40 singer. No different if you want to pick someone other than Justin Bieber, fine. Pick any pop 40 singer targeted towards an audience between the ages of 14 and 25. Sure. But sure. no one wants to think of old blue eyes that way. Probably well, because he would have punched you that. in the face had you said it. Yeah, right. But As he put his well, cigarette out in your forehead. <laughs> so, uh, we're, this is kind of going long, so I'll go to the last one. Um... A theme was I call it communist bugs. Um, Heinlein was a de- devoted anti-communist, and he basically de- designed the bugs to be represented of the Soviet Union. Because the time he believed that well, all the Soviets live under a hive mind run by the party. How wrong he was, but. Um, and what he learned, what, what he was trying to say is that people are too individualistic and they excel the best when they're individuals while learning how to put someone else in front of them. Just forget the contradiction, folks. But um, so they were run. It's bad to be run by a hive mind like a one party state like the bugs were, because also, too, in the book, when the brain bug was captured, when sergeant zim captured them all the other bugs just ran away or were stuck because they didn't know what to do and the brain bugs were happy to let the other bugs get killed because as long as they were safe right you know it's it's going back to you know kim jong-il if his life were threatened he'd let the whole military north korean military eat it as long as he got away um and 
this idea that you can't live in any form of communalism and that it's antithetical to individuality. Well, first, A, is that necessarily true? And B, isn't that kind of a contradiction of what he was going for with citizenship and moral code and militarism? It entirely is. Um, first off, the individualism is, is, is it's false. I'm not going to say it's stupid. Um, I know America is supposed to be built on this concept of rugged individualism. But we're well, and he was, as a side note too, he was a very big fan of Ayn Rand, which tells you another level. We're herd animals. We are a herd animal. We are drawn to congregate. We build groups. We enlarge those groups. Our basic social group is the family, but we enlarge that, and it becomes our street. It becomes our city. It becomes our state. It becomes our nation. We look for ways to identify ourselves as part of a larger group, and that group is the right group. And then we look for people who are not part of our group and call them the wrong group. Um, that's essential in human nature. We are not individuals. We're not lone hunters. We are a pack animal. We group together, and we are driven to do it. How large we build those groups, I don't know. How much of a say we want within those groups, there's some variance to it. But it's all a form of communalism. It's all about building a community. It's just what do you want the end goals of that society to be and what do you want the end distribution of the wealth and the resources of that society to be? That's the difference. Communism and capitalism are, are both still, I don't want to say communal systems because there's probably that's an improper word, but there's still ways of building a group of society, uh, of building a society, organizing and controlling that society, and then distributing the resources and wealth of that society to its members. Each sees it a different way as to how that should happen. But to sit there and say that we are at our core individualist and we're all best when acting in our own individual best interest is insanely stupid. There's a reason we pool together into cities and societies. Because our chance of living is better. The more we're pooling our resources, our strengths, our talents, and our abilities the better chance we have to thrive. Um, the problem is that at a certain point, that community gets too big, and people lose sight of how their individual sacrifice helps the community at large, which increases their safety and their overall quality of life, and they start to sabotage it. Are we individualists? No. We don't work well, human beings, as individuals. Are we, are we looking for one, do we work well in mass communes? No. But we probably would work really, really well on a city-state type of stage. Um, where, we yeah. could, where we could group together for our own best interests. Uh, if we could ever learn how to pull the entire resources of the planet for the betterment of everyone on the planet. And, and use all those resources for the betterment of that one global society regardless of the impact that it might have on an individual, we'd be a better, this would be a better planet to live on. Um, is, is that me saying, I mean, wow, that does sound like that's me arguing for communism, but um, no, I'm not arguing for communism, but I'm saying this nonsense of individualism is just that. It is nonsense. We all live in a community. We all live in a society. 
And I think that uh, Verhoeven is actually kind of making the argument that communism and militarism, communism and, and democracy, even though you could have a democratic communist country, we won't go there. Um, they're two sides of the same coin. Where you have a brain bug that's, that's ruling the communist bugs and telling them how to think and controlling their actions. Okay. Is that any different than the massive news propaganda network that is telling everyone or the sky marshal that's telling everyone how to think? Let me ask you a question. Is the party in China telling them the correct thought that they're supposed to have much different than here in America, whether you figure out your correct thought is coming from Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, ONN, whatever it is? Um, Is it any different if the party's telling you how to be indoctrinated? Or if it's um, Tucker Carlson? I always got a kick out of hearing people in my church say, um, complain about how schools indoctrinate kids. And I just thought, and by indoctrinate, you mean they don't tell them what you want them to tell them? Would you feel it would not be indoctrination if they taught them as you desire? And, and make them adopt what you think? then it's no longer indoctrination because you agree with it? It doesn't matter. Right. And it doesn't matter what form of government you look at. Communism, Chinese dynastic system, European socialism, authoritarianism, um, U.S. republicanism, Roman republicanism. It all amounts to the people in the halls of power, those limited subset of individuals forming that society of the ruling class are trying to manipulate the non-ruling class into believing that they have their best interest at heart and, and at heart and supporting them because no one rules from their own power doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you are elected doesn't matter if you are appointed doesn't matter if you're born to it if you you know Kings have fallen because they rule so incompetently that the common people just finally stop accepting it. Or, more often, the aristocracy removes that person because they realize that shortly the common people won't accept it. And that's what they really always fear. Um, But ultimately, no one rules of their own power. The people who successfully rule are those who can convince enough people that they will act that it is in their best interest if they have the power. And that's it. doesn't matter if it's communism, republicanism, socialism, authoritarianism. It doesn't matter. It's all still a shell game of making everyone believe that you are the person best suited to hold power. And the rest of it is just a different form and dressing and mechanism of control of the average person. Okay, well... Before we sign off on this, I want to give a chance for one more rip or pick because I have a rip. Um, wow. Rico and Carmen jumped the uh, rank shark pretty quick. They Not just as fast as Captain promo- Kirk, but yeah. No, but yeah, I mean, they're trailing behind. So that was a rip. Any other one more rip or pick, Scott? Not for me. Okay. So let's rate this thing. How many mobile infantrymen do you give it? Six. Um, All right. It's, it's an above-average movie that was an enjoyable two hours. Um, 
there were some funny moments, and if you take it as what it's supposed to be, which is a which is a satire, um, I'm going to say a satire of militarism and of communism and of democracy, and you just kind of take it as as that. Um, it's enjoyable, but I don't think it can rise too much higher because I I don't think it is entirely clear what it's bashing versus what it's supporting. And, and I would say that if you have to have read the book to have watched the movie, to understand the satire, and that's the only way it can be a 9 or a 10, then that supports, you know, coming to it as most people would without watching the book, rating it where I did somewhere about a 6. It's enjoyable. It's not bad. I don't regret watching it, but it's not going to be on my go-to of of things to watch and it's probably not going to be something that's sticking in my brain as I rethink social issues of society going forward. Um, it might pop up from time to time, but it's not going to get into a, a formative spot in my brain. Okay. I would say you don't need the book to get the satire. It's clear as day with all the Nazi iconic imagery, but um, yeah, I'd give this about a seven. I like Paul Verhoeven and I like the ethos of the message he was trying to give. He was being very sarcastic, much like he did with RoboCop and criticizing corporations. And he did the same with uh, Total Recall. And so I can appreciate that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of story glaring problems with this. And I suppose that was deliberate, but it does tend to make the aging process poorly. Um, because you could start to see things like, gee, the mobile infantry sure does suck. Or, gee, the tactics of the Federation sure does suck. And I think we're going to see that more in subsequent installments of the film. So, uh, but we'll be interested in hearing what Thomas has to say about these themes, militarism, citizen soldiers, moral de de degeneracy, and uh, communism, communist bugs. Um, we're also happy to hear your take on it. You can send it to us on our Discord page at Raven Lipstick Media, where you can find our other great sh uh, shows in October. In addition to Horror Month, we'll be back at the Quesitorium. Hopefully, we'll be getting a case of the chills with the haunted elevator. Um, also, Z Zodiac Task Force should be coming out pretty soon here in a week or two. And uh, starting my cycle of writing, so you can go knock that as soon as you want. In fact, if you choose to knock it or this episode or give us your take on it, you can do it at our Discord or at RavingLunaticMedia.com, 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 Ragemaster. What's left for them to do? Stay sick, sickies. And watch out for murder hornets. Do you like music? Well, then you'll love this. Hi, my name's Matt Ruckstar. I run several podcasts here on Raving Lunatic Media, including Cold Case Chase, which is returning on Halloween of this year, and Zodiac Task Force. You might recognize me more if I spoke like this. What you might not know is that I have an album dropping this Friday, September 9th. It's going to be my second album, the first one being The Raving Lunatic, this one being called Dancing with Dragons. So if you like music like this, or this, like a lion, y'all just lying. 
be quiet so I can keep on vibing. Or even this. You should probably go hit the pre-save link in my bio on Instagram, at RuckstarOfficial. That's R-U-K-S-T-A-R official. I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode and rock on. I've seen this one. I've seen this one. This is a classic. This is our... Sci-fi melody. Dresses up as a man from space. What do you mean you've seen this? It's brand new. Yeah, well, I saw it on a rerun.